Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The parliamentary uh, budget officer came out with some news today that, uh, you know, that, um, and I'm sure you do, that interest rates are up. You've, You've probably noticed this, right? You've heard something about interest rates in this country being up a little bit. Yeah, well, remember when the government in its fall financial statement said that we were going to be spending something like $40 billion a year to service our debt. Yeah, that's not really close. It's way more than that. It's almost $50 billion we're spending this year to service our debt. That is just wasted money. Wasted money. One person who I know is thrilled with this development uh, is Franco Terrazano, who is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, joins us now. Franco, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. It sounds like you got some good Christmas plans. Sorry to come on the show and be your Grinch tonight. Well, you know what? At least it's not going to cost me $50 billion to do this, which is, uh, I, uh, like, I, I'm almost not surprised at this point anytime somebody, and he, let me back up for a sec, because this, the federal, the, the parliamentary budget officer, you can say you don't like Pierre Polyev and he doesn't say what you agree with and he says a, st- a bunch of things that you think are lies or you could say the same about Justin Trudeau or about Jagmeet Singh. This is an independent person. So I think regardless of whose position you take and whose side you're on, this is someone we have to listen to. Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, the parliamentary budget officer is a budget watchdog within the government, completely nonpartisan, just by the books. Here are the number folks. We're just here to show you what's actually going on. You make decisions up for your own, okay? I think they're doing fantastic work. I bet you they're going to be on the taxpayer nice list this year. And today's report is another blockbuster from the PBO, okay? So we just, a couple weeks ago, the finance minister, Christia Freeland, she released this budget update. The numbers were bad. And now the PBO is showing the numbers are even worse, okay, folks? So Freeland said that we would be running a $40 billion deficit this year. Remember, before the pandemic, $40 billion deficit would be unthinkable. Good luck running on that promise, okay? So she says she's going to run a $40 billion deficit. A couple weeks later, fast forward to today, the PBO says, no, 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 not $40 billion. $48.5 billion deficit, almost $50 billion of red ink. And why is the government's fiscal situation so bad? Because they just can't stop the spending spree, okay? Freeland said she would save $15 billion. The only problem with that is the PBO has crunched the numbers and shows that the government is increasing spending by another $21 billion over an already ballooned baseline, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but the problem with these never-ending sky-high deficits is we're losing so much money on these interest charges going to the bond fund managers. Franco, there's no way to have this discussion and it not to sound partisan, but I don't know that dollar figures are partisan. It's just that there is this much money that is being wasted and somehow nobody who is in a position to do anything about it right now is putting a stop to it. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you prefaced this conversation with that, right? Because I really do hope that it's just people just get concerned about the finances of our nation, about our government, about what we're leaving to, uh, you know, the kids and grandkids of Canada. But also just the fact that, like, interest charges are absolutely biting a huge hole in the government's budget right now, right? So because we have this massive deficit every year, because we now have $1.2 trillion of debt federally, and with interest rates going up, we're paying a ton 
just to cover the interest charges on what fundamentally is a government credit card, okay? So listen to this, folks. Uh, Every month, about $4 billion is going to the bond fund managers to service this debt, the interest charges on the debt, okay? So that's about $4 billion every month that can't be used to improve services, whether it's uh, for more health care, whether it's to improve the roads, or to stay in your pockets through lower taxes because that money is going to pay interest on the debt. So that's already a huge figure. Right, that's a cost to each Canadian of about a thousand dollars this year, but it's getting really bad. So next year, let me put it into context. Next year, the amount of money the federal government will spend on interest charges will surpass the amount of money that the federal government sends to the provinces for health care. One more time, the amount of money the Fed spend next year on interest charges will be greater than what they spend on health care transfers. In a handful of years, every penny collected from the GST, the sales tax, will be going to pay interest on the debt. Okay, so let me just put a bow on that little present for everyone. Think about what we could do if we didn't have these interest charges. You could essentially double health care spending from the feds, or in a couple of years, entirely eliminate the GST. Okay, so this is why it's really bad when a government runs up this red ink, when they have absolutely no plan to balance the budget, you end up with one of the scenarios where a huge chunk of the federal budget, our money, is going to pay the interest on the federal debt. For people around here uh, in Hamilton, where we've got this big LRT project that remains looming, and I don't want to bring up LRT again, other than the fact that when you said $4 billion a month that we're spending, it just sort of fits in. That's... That would be enough to build our brand new LRT, which we're talking about is this enormous project. And it is. It's an enormous project. $4 billion. Now, it may be more than that by now, but that's the number. The 3.4 is what we were last told. We are spending that, just giving it to banks, not that can't be used for anything. The amount of money that it would be, we could build an LRT in 12 different Canadian cities every year with the money that we are just giving to the banks. It's, it's, it's staggering. That's such, a good, that's such a good analogy, right? Because that just puts it into people's mind that, like, this is real implications for people, right? Whether it's a new LRT every single month that could have been built instead of wasting it on these interest charges, or it's the entire federal health care transfer budget next year, or in a handful of years, interest charges equal the total revenue they bring in in the sales tax, right? Like, think about how many people are struggling right now. And, and obviously, when you go to the till to purchase, you know, everything that you, you like, whether it's a bar of soap or a hockey stick for Christmas, you're paying the GST on that. Well, just think that in a handful of years, all that money you paying through the federal sales tax is essentially going to the bond fund managers because of this interest. The, uh, yeah, the, and, and the other thing about this that I find, and we're short on time, and I wish we had a lot more, but the other thing about this, though, is I don't see anybody, I mean, even, again, even if we're going to say, well, Pierre Polyev is the guy talking about cutting this back, but even he, I have not heard a word spoken about cutting the debt. We're talking about getting rid of the deficit, but as long as that debt remains, this number is going to be normalized. This is going to be what we're paying in perpetuity until someone decides we're going to chip into the debt, and I'm hearing nothing about that. Well, you know what is the thing, right? Obviously, we do have a liberal government now, so the buck stops with them, right? They, they need to be held accountable. But so do the opposition parties, right? And we haven't even seen some of the littlest things uh, being done right by all the parties. Like, let's not forget, folks, and I know this is a little dollar and cent thing, but every single year, over the last couple of years, while so many people have struggled, 
all members of parliament from all party lines have taken a pay raise every single year. So we haven't even seen one person break rank, hold a press conference, say this is wrong. Right. So that really goes to show like I hope people know this isn't a partisan issue and we need to put pressure on all single parties, every single one of them out there to do the right thing and to look for the ample places to actually cut back spending. Because, look, these interest charges are going through the roof. Uh, Taxes are continuing to go up every year. And the debt accumulation, I mean, we owe about thirty thousand dollars each in federal government debt. So a baby born today, she's crying because she's already on the hook for about thirty grand Hmm. in federal government debt alone. And the one thing that is partisan, and I will say this, is um, with the way the polls are showing right now, at some point there's going to be an election. And if you are the governing party and you are low in the polls, what is the one surefire thing that we will always see, no matter what the political stripe is, tons of spending to buy votes. So I don't see any, any belief, I don't have any belief that spending is going to be curtailed to help with this. I think as we get closer to an election, we're going to see a huge spike in spending to try and win. Well, you know what? Let me just say a quick thing here, okay? As interest charges go through the roof and and take up more and more of the federal government's budget, eventually those politicians' hands are going to be tied. And you know who's going to be making the decisions? The bond fund managers, okay? The people who lend the government the money. Eventually they're going to have to say, look, you have to make some tough decisions. And so it's better to make some of those tough decisions right now before we get too far down the road when you're going to see real big cuts, just like what happened in the 90s, right? Why did that happen? Because you had these big deficit governments continuing to kick the can. But at the end of the day, you got to pay the piper. There's no getting around that. One of these days we'll talk about what happens. I don't think it's possible for us to default. Uh, maybe we'll talk about, you know, what, what the what ifs at some point down the road, although it's, it's, you know, it's pretty bleak right now to get into the what ifs. So we won't do that right now. We've got enough real things to not have to get into those. Uh, Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me on today. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don't know if you caught, any of this from earlier this week, but uh, there was a fascinating congressional hearing in the States in which the presidents of Harvard and Penn and MIT, three of the most prestigious schools in the United States, Ivy League schools, were called in front of Congress, this congressional hearing anyway, to discuss reports of anti-Semitism on campus and actions that people were taking, statements, threats, intimidation, whatever. And they were asked about whether or not this fell within their guidelines, their rule book. And all three of these university presidents have been shredded online and in academia and around basically a lot of places in North America and the world in the days since. Because their answers were not what most people thought they were going to be. Essentially, they said, if you want to walk on our university and chant calling for the genocide of Israel, that's not really, uh, there's, con- we have to know what the context is before that breaks any rules. And it only breaks rules if it leads to actions. It's a, It was a stunning answer. Well, does that happen? Is the same kind of thing? Not exactly, but are we looking at similar things on Canadian campuses as well? Uh, it's a question that is um, that is answered to a degree and more in a piece in the National Post today uh, by John Bonnet, who is a professor at Brock. His headline, as a prof at Brock University, I don't want the woke class telling me what to say. He joins us now. Professor, thanks for this. Good to be here. That was a long introduction. I apologize, but I just wanted to set it up because I, I have, since watching bits of this, 
been wondering if this is a unique thing to what's going on in the States or if we're seeing similar things on campuses here. Oh, no, it's not unique at all in the uh, in the U.S. Um, um, I can point to uh, two events that I think should concern listeners. One was at Concordia, where there was a uh, speaker who uh, was saying some pretty awful things um, about uh, Jews and Zionists and so forth uh, that uh, were absolutely horrifying. And then another event I can point to is uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, where a group of uh, law students wrote an open letter uh, where they criticized their university for uh, supporting Israel and argued that they offered their unequivocal support to all forms of resistance uh, against Israel. So, uh yeah, I, uh, you know, the troubling events are uh, certainly continent-wide, and I imagine uh, extending across the Atlantic as well. One of the things about this, so we can have a debate all day, and, and it's a difficult debate, but I'm certainly happy to have it, about freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and what we should allow, what shouldn't be allowed. I tend to lean more towards let people say what they are going to say until it reaches the level of, you know, fire in a crowded theater kind of thing. Not everyone's going to agree with that, but it doesn't seem that, to me anyway, it doesn't seem that there is a, a an equality of that. It doesn't seem like you could say what you've just described on U.S. or Amer or Canadian campuses about other groups and universities would turn a blind eye to it. Yeah, I, I would say that is uh, very fair. Um, I mean, I'm with you. I am a member of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, so... Uh, you know, I tend to come down, um, you know, on the give the participants at a university as much latitude as possible to say their piece. The university, in principle, should be an institution where people are able to raise ideas, fight them out, and in so doing, come to some semblance about what is uh, true, good, beautiful, or what have you. Um, where I have a particular problem, and this is part of the reason I wrote my piece, is that universities are becoming uh, partisan agents. Traditionally, they have been institutions that are neutral. Their job is to create an environment where people like me can say our piece. Their job is not to say something themselves. That ethic has been uh, diminishing over, I would say, the past 10 years. Universities now are becoming ever more partisan. They have come into the, you know, they've gotten into the habit of uh, issuing official statements. They have started to take sides. And as you say, they've also become increasingly partisan in terms of how they deal with the people within their institution. In certain circumstances, they will afford the right of uh, free speech to people who are within who are saying what the administrators of that university want to hear, and they will clamp down on others who are not speaking the orthodoxy that they want to promote. Uh, there's a great new book out called The Canceling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and Ricky Schlott that uh, notes that, uh, you know, uh, inconsistent behavior on the part of universities and also documents how and when universities have been clamping down. They've been doing more 
uh, in recent years than they used to. That is a troubling development. Well, and, and, you know, I don't know that I had ever heard, and maybe this just says something about my age, John, but I had, I don't know that I'd ever heard the term microaggression until I heard it in the context of a university campus, you know, 10 years ago, maybe, I don't know, eight years, 12 years. But it, when you consider how many times in recent years we've heard of people complaining about some microaggression, and then you have something where people are, as I say, in the States, certainly, we heard this in the congressional hearing, marching, calling for intifada or for a genocide. That's not a microaggression. That's a macroaggression and nothing is done. It seems like you either, they've painted themselves in a corner almost, it seems. You either have to say, we're going to let it go because it's free speech or we're going to stop everything because everything's offending someone. Yeah, well, I I would say that is uh, that is true. They are painting themselves into a corner, um, in part by the inconsistent behavior that they have uh, displayed. And uh, you know, one of the um, points that I make in my piece is that uh, universities, for the most part, both Canada and the United States, are public institutions. We created their legislation that brought them into existence. So we, as citizens, need to take a more proactive uh, role in uh, responding to our universities. We don't have to put up with this. We don't have to, uh, you know, we can pressure our uh, public officials to uh, start constraining the behavior of universities or more specifically university administrators so that they are more consistent in how they act. And more to the point, they uh, create cultures and institutions that are designed to support academic freedom, freedom of speech, the basic uh, core um attitudes and stances that are, you know, we need universities to have those. If we don't have universities where you can basically come up with ideas and debate them, we're going to be poorer for it as a society. We're going to be less able to adapt. And that's, you know, with the multitude of problems we have in the present day, that is not something we can afford. But is there any impetus behind that? Is there any, I mean, it, you again, th this thing in the States, you had three of the most biggest well-known legendary university presidents who were there if the presidents of universities are not eager to do that who's going to be the person or the group or i mean even if a government says yeah we're going to now put new rules in to do this who's going to enforce that well um in part government um you know government uh, will create legislation and government would be the need the need to be the regulatory body to ensure that at least the institution of the university is acting in accordance with its rules. So, uh, you know, that would be at least my my initial response. Uh, there are other things that we can do as a society. I mean, I, for my part, uh, believe that we ought to be uh, creating greater links between universities and their local towns, their local settlements, their mm -hmm. local universities. Um, and in so doing, uh, that linkage should uh, create something like I would create something like grand juries or something where you have a lot of the decision making power transferred to local people in the community. They are the ones who bring the community perspective to what uh, a university does. They are the ones uh, who I think could and should uh, be responsible for um, determining things like the strategic direction of a university, what new types of faculty positions are hired, mm. even who is hired. Yeah.
John, we got to run, unfortunately. Uh, the piece is John Bennett as prof at Brock University. I don't want the woke class telling me what to say. It's in the National Post. I I hope, I, I would love to believe that that would be something that would work. I'm so pessimistic, though. I got to admit that it would just lead to further outcry about who will be the the people doing that. Nonetheless, that's a discussion for a different day, and I'd love to have you back to do that. I uh, really appreciate you taking time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is no, I don't think there's any dis- debate about this, whether you're talking Leafs or anything else. There is no story around here in Southern Ontario, not even the hiring of the Ticats new head coach. Uh, if, not even close. But that comes within the range of what the discussions are, what the story is with the Blue Jays and their pursuit of Shohei Otani, which we're told now, reports say anyway, that we should know something by the end of the weekend, whether we do or not. Who knows? But that's what the the new version of the story is, and the 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 story for those who don't know it, if there's two people out there who don't, is probably maybe not even probably the greatest current baseball player, one of arguably the greatest of all time, potentially free agent now and looking at enormous money to come somewhere. I want to bring in Mike Wilner? He is a uh, longtime voice of the Blue Jays. He is the host of Deep Left Field, the podcast. He is also a columnist with the Toronto Star on baseball. Joins us now. Mike, how are you today? I'm doing okay, Scott. Thanks. How are you? I am good. Before we get into all the money and stuff, where, where you know, when I introduce him as arguably, if not the greatest modern baseball player, um, I don't know who else I put in that category with him. Mike Trout, his well, former slash current for now teammate might be. Who else? Who, who who would be in the discussion with him right now? Nobody. Okay, you're, Nobody. you you put not, him right not, at the top. Not even, not even Mike Trout. No, he is the um, easily the most talented current major leaguer and probably the most talented uh, person ever to play this game. I mean, there is there is quite literally no one who has ever done the things that Shohei Otani has done. No, and the name Babe Ruth always comes up because he pitched, but my understanding of history was a little before my time, uh, wasn't generally doing the pitching and the hitting at the same time. He was a pretty good pitcher and then became a great hitter, but it wasn't simultaneous. That's what Otani is doing. That's right. When Babe Ruth was a great pitcher, he he hit to the extent that pitchers had to hit right there was no dh then so you know he he would get his 80 at bats or whatever a season and they once they started to make him more of a full-time hitter he didn't pitch as much and then after like a year he didn't pitch at all so um yeah yeah and also he never had to face any black players or pitchers right um but uh yeah it's it's not it's not a close comparison between Babe Ruth and Shohei Otani. I know that's kind of blasphemous, but um, but it's it's absolutely true. Well, okay. So the idea then, if you if this guy is and, and look, there, there are debates, but I, I think there's a lot of people who hold the view that you do. I don't think your view is crazy. I think there's a lot of people who would say I agree wholeheartedly with what Mike just said. If that's the case, is there any limit? If you're the Blue Jays. And I mean, I'm I'm not saying twenty million dollars or twenty billion dollars a year, but I mean, with is there a limit to what you do, or do you pull out every single stop to try and get this guy? Well, first of all, if there is anyone who who disagrees, uh, I would love to debate them because it's I, I really don't feel like it's an opinion based thing. It's it's I mean, you could look it up, um, but uh, I think 
that you give him whatever he wants. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, the Blue Jays, um, it's pretty clear that they are, they, they've targeted him and that, that uh, he's interested, interested at least enough to fly from L.A. to Dunedin to check out the spring training site. And I can't imagine that he saw that and was anything less than absolutely blown away like everybody else in the game I've ever talked to who's been there has has said. Um, and you basically make sure that you're doing absolutely everything you can to leave it so that if the only if if he doesn't come to you, it's only because he just wants to play somewhere else. Mm. Um, but it's not going to be money. It's not going to be term. It's not going to be opt-outs. It's not going to be uh, any personal considerations that he might want. Um, I I can't imagine that if he doesn't come to the Blue Jays, we wind up hearing a story a day later or a week later or a month later that, he didn't come because they wouldn't give him this. I really don't believe that there's there there's anything they wouldn't give him. The the numbers are incredible, and and for people who are cynical about money in sports, well, this is going to only enhance that cynicism because I haven't. Maybe you have. I haven't seen really a single report, and it's all speculation, but not a single report that says he's going to get less than five hundred million dollars over the term of his contract. And now we're hearing maybe six hundred. I heard a seven hundred. We have no idea, but it's an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of money. The question is, does it make it? Does it make good business sense for the Blue Jays? Leaving aside the winning or losing, that that's a that's a discussion we'll get to in a second. But business wise. Can the Blue Jays, can Rogers look at putting, let's say, let's just pick a number, let's say $600 million US. Could they put that money out there and say, we can make a legitimate business case that he'd be worth this much? It's a, it's an interesting question. Frankly, I don't care. Uh, and I don't think any fan <laughs> should no. care, right? It, it, it doesn't matter. Um, it's not, it, it, it shouldn't be about business when you're talking about being able to land the the best who ever played. Well, it only, uh, Mike, it only matters as far as baseball in so far as if he were to come and if you're a fan and if it's not, if there's no business case, he may be the only guy they're willing to spend money on. Cause we got to move everybody else out. Cause we can't afford Guerrero or Bichette or whoever down the road. That would be the only reason. Yeah. But there's no cap. Um, it's, it's not like, you know, there's a limit as to how much they can spend on payroll. If they want to the, the New York Mets, with tax penalties last year, ran a half billion dollar payroll. Um, the Blue Jays were at like 212, 212 million or something like that last year, and it was the highest payroll they've ever had. Um, Rogers is one of the richest owners, if not the richest owner in the sport. Um, they're getting out from under that $5 billion hockey deal in a couple of years or, or sooner. Um, they've, they've got the money. And they want this guy. So this contract may cost a billion dollars Canadian. Uh, can they afford it? Absolutely. Uh, does it make business sense? I think it does because the revenues that he brings in, you become Japan's team. Uh, you may become, you know, with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. here, you're 
you know, you got a chance to be the Dominican Republic's team too. And you might become the team that everyone outside the U.S. is a fan of and is wearing your gear and is subscribing to Sportsnet now to watch games or, or whatever. You know, if the Blue Jays sign Otani, you'll see advertising on the outfield wall in Japanese. You'll see the advertising behind home plate. Some of that will be in Japanese as well. Um, you're certainly getting back a lot more in revenue than you would if you signed anybody else. Yeah, and, and I and I I mean for all those points, I think as you look at it from a business case, and again, I'm, I'm we are talking baseball, but you, you do have to also look at the money because it is it just it is such an extraordinary amount of money. And yes, Rogers is really rich, but they also have shareholders, and they you know they don't want to be just throwing that money away. But it, I mean, it does seem as though for the things you're talking about, that as crazy as paying a guy six hundred million dollars sounds it may be not that crazy in the grand scheme of things. If they've got good marketing people and good salespeople, which they do, they can make that back. It seems. I think that there is this, you know, this myth about how much athlete professional athletes are paid in North America. Um, you know, and, and you talked about being cynical about how much money athletes make. What's the alternative? Ownership well, goes to the owners, money. right? Right. It's not ticket prices aren't going to go down. The price of a beer is not going to go down. The price of your hot dog is not going to go down. You're either suggesting, not you personally, but it's either being suggested that players who people pay to see, who perform, um, who are the product, make the money or the owners make the money. Uh, none of these offers would be out there if it wasn't worth it. You know, remember when um, when teams used to, you know, when Joe DiMaggio signed for $100,000 and it was breaking the bank and they couldn't afford it. Um, and it was all a lie. And, you know, as soon as free agency started, the owners were complaining that teams were going to go under and it was all a lie. And, and the first player who made a million dollars was going to be the end of the world. And then two years later, somebody's making three. And then five years later, somebody's making 10. It's the money is there. It's all there. It's always been there. Teams are profitable before they sell a single ticket. Every single team in the major leagues. So it's there. And it wouldn't be offered if it wasn't there. And I would much rather see it go in a player's pocket than in an owner's. Just before we move off the money part here, um, the fact that Toronto and then Canada, the, I mean, this area is so cosmopolitan and has so many people from different places in the world. Do you think that factors in it all? Do, do you think, in other words, uh, people want to go see the Jays win and people want to go see great players. Do you think it matters what the nationality of the player might be? Do you think that is a lure for people in this area? For the fans? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no. I mean, when it's your own nationality, sure. I think bringing in Hyunjin Ryu brought in a lot of Korean fans. That's what I mean. I think, would you attract yeah. more people who, because he's Japanese, would go, oh, I'll go see a game now that I wouldn't have before necessarily? Japanese people, yes. People with Japanese heritage, yes. I don't think your average dude on the street, um, average, whatever that is. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I know, but it's the wrong way to say it. Uh, I, I don't think your you know, 26-year-old Canadian-born, sixth-generation white dude whose family's from England 
will say, oh, they, they got Shohei Otani. He's from Japan. I want to go see him play because he's from Japan. I, I don't believe that to be true, but I do believe that, yeah, there will be an, an influx of Japanese fans for sure. And there was a time. But I maybe. think also, sorry, culture aside and his nationality aside, um, there will be an influx because he is the best player in the game. Right. He's a unicorn. He's something, someone that no one's ever seen before. Right. And as I say, there was a time. I mean, I think when Ishiro came along, there were people who were curious because we hadn't seen a lot of yep. Japanese players who were the best players in the game. We'd seen Japanese right. players, but they'd been guys. Now you have maybe the best player. I think there was a curiosity factor. I think that may be done now. All right. So l- let's say for a second that he lands in the Blue Jays lineup. Where if, He's not going to pitch this year because he had Tommy John surgery, presumably. But then after that, where, where do you put him? Where is he hitting and, and how are you using him to try and help this team? Where does he go? He's a DH and he bats second. And, and he, he hits a bunch of home runs and he drives in a bunch of runs and he hits a bunch of triples and he steals a bunch of bases and, and he does all kinds of things. Like he becomes your, the centerpiece to your lineup. You can, um, you can have Springer and Vlad batting uh, on each side of him or Bo Bichette in there. It, he, he is the engine and he would be, he's your Jose Bautista only better. Does he make Vladimir, Vladimir Guerrero's season last year was not what it had been, what was expected. Does he make him better? Just by just by being in that lineup and being a threat, I don't know. I mean, there have been a lot of theories about whether lineup protection is real, whether it exists or not. Um, and a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I am have done some deep dives into it and and have shown that it really doesn't matter where somebody hits. It doesn't really matter who's hitting behind him or who's hitting ahead of him. Uh, when you shake things all down over the course of a full season, but I mean, it can't hurt. Right. The, the more often you're coming up with people on base or the more often you're coming up with a lead, the more often you're facing um, pitchers who are, you know, 11, 12, 13 on a team staff instead of um, the top couple of people out of the bullpen, the better you're going to be. And Shohei Otani helps the Blue Jays get to all that. Let's go back to the 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 spectacle around it for a second, because there have been a bunch of people I know you've surely seen this online there have been a bunch of people who say you know what major league baseball quietly doesn't really want shohei otani in canada because you know we want him where he's going to be a a, a, have an impact on tv ratings and be a draw in the states that's always sort of been thrown out there that any star they don't want stars i mean the nhl didn't want Connor mcdavid in edmonton they say do you think that's true or do you think major league baseball has now looked at it and said you know what if we could get an entire country interested in a guy that's pretty good too or do you think they have any care? Do you think they're agnostic? No, I think they care. I, I think they would prefer that all their stars play in New York. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know that they're completely thrilled with a star going to play in the Pacific time zone where nobody on the East Coast really ever watches them um, except for a Sunday night baseball or when they're playing road games out East or anything like that. I think it it, it would be a boon to have a, a player in the Eastern time zone. Uh, I'm sure they would prefer it not be in Canada because they don't, you know, they don't get ratings. They have a deal with ESPN. There's no ratings in Canada. They have a deal with uh, whatever, uh, with Fox. They're, they they have no local station in Canada, so they don't get any ratings. And, and uh, I'm sure they would prefer them not to be here, but um, 
but yeah, be, playing in Pacific time doesn't really help that much either for the the um, majority of baseball fans in North America who are, you know, in Central time or Eastern time. Okay, so w- most of what we've talked about has been assuming, and, and it's not a fair assumption, but just for the sake of discussion, that he might come here. What if he doesn't? What if he chooses, uh, apparently the Dodgers or the other team, but what if he chooses the Dodgers and you've already now got Baltimore, we saw last year, is a pretty darn good team in the AL East. Uh, you've got uh, Tampa that always seems to figure out a way to be in the mix. The Yankees just traded for Juan Soto, who was a guy who was the Jays were reportedly interested in. If all of a sudden, though, Tawny thing falls apart, where do the Jays stand now going into free agency and trying to figure this out? Yeah, I mean, that's that's why Ross Atkins and his assistants make so much money. Um, I'm sure that all their eggs are not in the Shohei Otani basket because the truth of the matter is it's at the very least, it's as likely as not that he doesn't come here. Right. Um, So they've got some work to do Uh, with Soto off the market. um, They've got some work to do if they, um, you know, they're going to have to put plans B, C and D into action and they're not going to be as sexy and they're not going to be as fun and they're not going to be as exciting and they're not going to um, move the needle anywhere near what a Shohei Otani acquisition would, but they're going to have to do it. They've, they've lost half of their um, offense pretty much to free agency. Four regulars are, are gone. They're going to have to replace at least three of them, you would think. Uh, and they're going to have to do it with good hitters and, they're going to have to get creative because the free agents just aren't out there. It's going to be trades. Uh, it's going to be trades involving people that you probably not ra- rather not see them trade. Um, but, you know, you have to imagine that while there's been so much work going into signing Otani, they've been doing an equal amount of work on what happens if we don't get them. All right. And last thing then, I, I saw a tweet from you today about someone had uh, posted that, you know, well, they're not going to get him because stars don't choose to come to Canada. And and you rightly posted that over the last number of off seasons, you know, the Jays have picked up a number of the bigger free agents in the game. So that's, that's a, you know, a, a fallacy. Nonetheless, the Jays, the fans got excited because they heard they were in on Soho. Soto, he's not coming. If Otani with all this talk about it doesn't come Leaving aside what the Jays can build on the field, is it a is it a terrible offseason then in the eyes of the Jays? Have you is it almost worse to not get him and having chased him than not having chased him at all because of the disappointment fans will have then? It's it's interesting. I think some of the more petulant fans who exist only to get angry uh, will you know run their play like they always do. Uh, I, I would hope that the majority of fans, having seen how serious they are, how far into the deep end the Blue Jays are willing to go, and um, the fact that they got to the end with the greatest free agent available in the history of the game, um, you would think that that would be a point in their favor. I'm sure people won't see it that way. Um I'm sure there will be many suggestions if Shohei Otani signs with the Dodgers or the Giants or if he goes back to the Angels that this offseason was a failure uh, on December 7th or 8th or 13th or whenever he makes up his mind. Um, But 
you really just have to ignore those people um, because winning the winter doesn't matter. Um, we've seen that so many times. And a lot of moves that don't look significant can wind up becoming significant. Um, so you have to see how the rest of the offseason plays out. See what plans B, C, and D are. And then watch them play. You know, we, we, we all want to know what's going to happen before it happens, and nobody knows. And anyone who says they know what's going to happen is either lying to you or to themselves. So if it doesn't happen, and again, it's as likely as not to not happen, um, then we got to wait and see what the pivot is. We'll find out. We expect sooner or well, it's got to be. Uh, here's, I mean, a prediction. He'll sign somewhere. So we'll find out at some point, somewhere, That's somehow, right. for some amount of money, um, someday. Uh, that 100%. is Mike Wilder. That is Mike Wilder. He is a columnist with the star voice of the Jays, also a host of Deep Left Field podcast you can find everywhere. Mike, always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Thanks. Hey, and this week's Deep Left Field just came out today. It's a roundtable conversation about Otani, Otani, and nothing but Otani. And did so. I see you had, uh, who'd you have from the Arkells on? Max? Nick. Nick, there you go. See, Arkell's Hamilton content on there as well. Appreciate there it. Thanks for doing this. All right. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know that the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame award show is going to end the same way the Karate Kid movie did with a flamingo kick to someone's face. However, you never know what might happen. But great, uh, great song to bring us into this one because the Canadian, as I say, the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame is going to be holding its annual induction in February here in Hamilton. And it is a, an amazing list of people going in, but specifically an amazing list of Hamiltonians and people from this area going in. Eugene Levy and Martin Short will be going in as part of the cast of SCTV. Jim Carrey from Aldershot going in. Uh, also going in, the late Billy Van, if you are a Hamiltonian of any time, if you've been here for any time, you know about the hilarious House of Frankenstein made right here in Hamilton with Vincent Price and a bunch of others. Uh, he's going in. Steve Smith, Red Green is going in. There are a number of others, but I mean, that is just that alone is an unbelievable list of some of the amazing Hamiltonians who have worked in the world of comedy and done amazing things in the world of comedy over the years. Uh, here to talk about it, Eric Johnson is a Hamilton-based stand-up comedian. He will be performing at the festivities in February there. Uh, Eric joins us now. Eric, how are you tonight? I'm really good. The best around. And, and the, there was a perfect music tie-in because uh, the, we have the best Canadian comedy around and we're celebrating it here in Hamilton. So I was chuckling to myself as they were playing that song. I thought... How apropos. How absolutely apropos. And as I say, if you can tie in the flamingo kick to the face of somebody, that would just, uh, to finish it, to do that, you know, that move at the end, the Ralph Macchio move. I don't know how you tie that into the comedy festival. Well, with, the but... <laughs> with the climate of Canadian comedy and the climate of stand-up comedy, there is a little heckling thing going on out there in the world. So who knows? Maybe I will end up flamingo kicking someone right in the chest. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the but... one... Before we get into all these people, the only thing missing from this, and I will say this, and I wish there was something, and maybe there still will be, I, I would hope that by February they figure out some way, not necessarily into the Hall of Fame, but some way to mention or honor Donnie Coy, uh, who recently passed away, who was a legend from around here with Yuck Yucks and just every, 
I mean, I don't know how many shows he did, but just a, there's another local comedy legend. Oh, of course. Every time that I, I mention of someone of that age group and I say I'm a stand-up comic from Hamilton, the first question is always, do you know Donnie Coy? Uh-huh. Did you ever work with Donnie Coy? Did you ever do Donnie Coy's New Year's show? And I go, well, I was about four when I was <laughs> I would have, I would have, trust me, they, they, I heard they were legendary shows, especially the New Year's Eve show. Uh, we actually all, after Donnie passed away recently, we all gathered at the Levity Comedy Club uh, downtown Hamilton, and we shared amazing, hilarious stories about Donnie, and I only met him a couple times, but it was enough to have some hilarious stories. So yeah, I think there, we are going to have a little, little Donnie Coy mention for sure here in Hamilton. All right. So help me out with this. this. I mean, it's not why it's being held here. Uh, that's great that it's being held here, but as I say, the list of people, this oftentimes, if you hold a, a, a hall of fame show in some hometown and they try and do a nod to some of the people from there, there are some okay people. Jim Carrey, Martin Short, Eugene Levy, Red Green, Billy Van- these are these are not nods to people who are just known around here. These are international worldwide superstars that have come out of this city. Yeah, there's something in the water here. And now I'm I'm a working, you know, current working stand-up comic uh, you know, from Hamilton. I'm very proud to say I'm from Hamilton. That's, you know, part of the reason why I got the gig to be on the host committee for the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame festival happening in Hamilton, but you, you said it, like you look around, you mentioned the names, they're not just, uh, you know, a little uh, a little nod of the hat. Yeah, you were there too. It's like, no, no, you were it. If you look at SCTV and you look at obviously the career of Jim Carrey and stuff, and I don't, I don't know what it is. It's that perfect, that mix of, you know, immigrant culture coming into Hamilton to work in the steel mills. Uh, you've got the American influence because we're Canadians, but we grew up with Fox 29 TV and got an American influence out of Buffalo. We are literally the second city to Toronto, the big city. So it just created a group of hilarious people, you know, uh, you know, a people who will kind of riff with each other and make fun of each other and then all go for beers at the end of their shift. Uh, that's the culture that is in Hamilton, and I think that's why we are here today. And I think that's why there's been so many great comics from Hamilton and, and comics who are out of Hamilton now working the road like myself and Patrick Coppolino, Manolo Santanos, Mace Galoni, uh, Michael Moses, uh, to name a few. These are all working comics from Hamilton, out on the road representing Hamilton. So, I think I think you touched on it, though, a second ago. I See, I don't know if it's the water. I think it's something of the particulates for coming from the steel mill over the years that gets in. I don't know what it is, but there's, you know, some people would say, well, that's toxic. I don't know. It seems like it works some magic. It's working for us. You know, my father was the late great Canadian Hall of Fame professional wrestler by the name of Bullwhip Danny Johnson out of Hamilton. And the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s, they used to call it the meat box. Uh-huh. And the meat, the meat cellar, that's where all the big wrestlers came from out of Hamilton. And that's where, you know, they said there was something in the water there. But I think you've got a point. There's something in the air as well. Uh, you know what, if, uh, I, there is something here, you just mentioned something else now between comedy and wrestling, I think there's probably no city in this country, maybe in North America that has produced more between the, the comics and, you know, Iron Mike Sharp and Dewey Robertson and on and on the Sharp brothers. And you go down the list. There's a, there's a ton in those two, you know, somehow we got to bring those two together, have a comedy wrestling show. I don't know how you do it. Without you realizing it or noticing it, uh, you just mentioned the Sharp brothers, and the, my, my father and my uncle were Danny and Randy Sharp. And I'm actually writing a book right now with, uh, with Greg Oliver, who's a legendary Yes, of course. Of 
And he actually wrote the Bill, Billy Van book to tie all this together. And I'm actually writing a book called Run with the Bull, Three Generations of Sports and Entertainment, because my grandfather was the original Mongol out of Hamilton. He used to run the wrestling shows out of the Boys and Girls Club and the Shamrock Club and CHCH Wrestling. And then Billy Van gets produced on CHCH. It's all right there. It's all right there. Well, if I'd known all that, Eric, and I probably should have done better research, but if I'd known all that, I would have come in today wearing my Iron Mike Sharp Canada's Greatest Athlete t-shirt that, I've, that oh, I have I in my drawer that. at I home. I love a mark when I find one. I love a good mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so th- I think, and, and you mentioned Billy Van. Let's go to him for a second because, again, when you go down this list of Jim Carrey, who, I mean, for a time, for six or seven years, was... I would argue the biggest star in Hollywood or in that discussion. I mean, there was nobody making more money per movie and nobody's movies were getting more attention. Um, uh, uh, Eugene Levy and Martin Short and SCTV, all those. Billy Van though, and maybe it is for him more localized. I don't know, but he is one of those guys that just oozes Hamilton. And it's not just because of Hilarious House of Frightenstein and it just, there's something about Billy Van and this city, and I'm not quite sure. Is it just because he worked here, or was there something else? Yeah, I think there's a lot. I think he's a representative of the city, not only being from here, but the show was produced on CHCH, which obviously has legendary ties to the city and still does. You know, I never get more recognized in my life than after I'm on CH Morning Live. Uh, it's just the trusted area. You know, Billy Van produced, like, if you talk to the current day, you know, Mike Myers and even Jim Carrey and all those guys, Billy Van and and the hilarious house it it, it pre it predates SCTV Saturday Night Live it was Canada's only kind of sketch variety show so when these guys were growing up in Ontario and they watched TV you know whether it was late on a Saturday night or early on a Sunday morning that was the show they watched and it shaped their style of comedy they all credit Billy Van. Uh, and, you know, it's a little before my time, but even I knew about it because, again, it was coming out of CH. It was a Hamilton thing. And working with Greg Oliver, he wrote the book on Billy Van. So, you know, I've learned a lot about him. And I just, and you hear so many interviews and everyone going, Billy Van, he's the man. You know, that was, that's his phrase. Billy Van's a man. He did everything. And, you know, to bring Vincent Price to Hamilton and have a show with him and, God, it, it birthed a bunch of stuff at productions that in Ontario as well, like Bazaar with John Biner. And I remember that. Yep. Yep. Yeah, but it was produced just down the road, and my dad was a day player on that as well. So I feel so at home with with the class, with being involved in the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. It's just it's a it's really a dream come true for me as an entertainer, for me as a Hamilton comic. One of the other people in here, as I mentioned before, Steve Smith, Red Green, uh, a friend of our family moved up here probably 25 years ago from Texas. And the only thing they knew about Hamilton before arriving here was Red Green because he was on their PBS channel and they came up and they knew about Hamilton specifically because of Red Green, which I find hilarious. Well, you know what? It's, it's funny. They're, the big part of the Canadian you know, vernacular is based on the Red Green show. You know, every time, there's not a Canadian who doesn't look at a roll of duct tape and think of Steve Smith and think of the Red It's true. It's true. You know? It's true. He should have. Did he, do we know, did he ever get any kind of endorsement deal with any duct tape company? Because if he didn't, my goodness, he has made people very, very rich with nothing for himself. Well, you know what? That sounds like Canadian comedy to a T. (laughs) Making a big American company billions of dollars. Uh, but you know what? Maybe he did. I know he had the, the duct tape uh, handyman's kind of book, and 
and all that kind of stuff. So there had to have been some sort of sponsorship. I'll tell you that. So I, I don't know. The, I don't know the details, but there had to have been some sort of working. Uh, if there's not, they, it's not too late. Everyone still connects duct tape to red green. The uh, the festival is it kicks off on February twenty first. There's going to be a gala dinner at the Hamilton Convention Center. Uh, Ron James is going to be hosting. Sean Majumder and Ashley Leggett, our friend Ashley Leggett, is going to be uh, is going to be there helping with that. Then there is going to be a number of events and other things going on throughout the week. Followed by on the twenty fourth, uh, the closing gala where they will be inducted all these people into the into the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. And you know, here's the other thing, and we got to run, but I, I would argue, and I don't, I don't know if there is, I'm assuming there is an American Comedy Hall of Fame. I don't know if there is or not. Even if there is or if there isn't, I, if you went down the list of the people, not just from Hamilton, but from Canada, I would say our Hall of Fame would be way better than anybody else's. There's just been so many who have come from this country who've done amazing things. For sure, it's like our hockey players. Yeah, there's some good Americans and some good Russians, but the Canadians are the best. You know, and, and just to cl- I know you were after to run, but I just want to announce a couple things. Yeah. I think you might be the first to hear this. Uh, so uh, just to go over the events, so as you said, Kemp Hospital, that's happening. Thursday night, we're having club, we're having indigenous comedy, we're having francophone comedy. Uh, Friday night is the Hamilton show, and that show features myself, Eric Johnston, Scott Falkenbridge, uh, there's going to be some amazing Hamilton. It's also, that's the induction of Red Green and Billy Van that night. And that night is headlined with a musical act performance from Teenage Head, which is so crazy. Nice. What a get. Uh, and also Saturday night, John uh, Majunder, all the inductions, and the Saturday night show is headlined musically by Blue Rodeo. So this is not just a comedy festival. This is variety. This is a talk show. There's going to be podcasts. There's going to be exhibits. You need to get your tickets now for the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame Festival. It's going to be, uh, people are going to be talking about this for, for many years to come. No kidding. And with the same night as you, with it being Francophone comedy, how's your French? Well, no, I'm not on the French. <laughs> That's in a separate, separate building, but uh, this way, if my French was better, I'd be touring a lot more in Quebec, because right now all I can do is Gatineau and Montreal, and that's it. It <laughs> is, uh, you can find him online. Eric Johnson is his name, Hamilton guy, who, a uh, very funny guy, and uh, we listen, we really appreciate you coming on and talking about some of your, uh, your colleagues and the people who have blazed the trail before you. Really appreciate it, Eric. Thanks for this. Thank you so much for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.